0: Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. All right, if you're ready for the Word of God, would you grab your Bible with me really quick and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to study all of chapter 8 on today. Um, for those of you who are here for the first time, we are in a sermon series called Possible through the Book of First Corinthians and so we're going to try to preach the whole book of First Corinthians and we'll get done with it at some point some point in the fall because we'll take a pause after this Sunday, but we, we reached the halfway mark. It's 16 chapters in the book of First Corinthians. We're at chapter eight today. and so I think this is going to be so pertinent and so practical for our walk uh, for our walk with, with God today. And so I'm excited to share in the Word of God on today as we study uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 from our sermon series titled Possible. And, and here's what I'll say. I've been saying this for weeks. We call this possible because 1 Corinthians deals with so many, so many issues in the life of a Christian. And so oftentimes we can see God's commands as something that is too much for us, too far away from us, that we, we don't have the power and the capacity to fulfill the demand, God's commands on our lives. And and, and if you feel that way, it's true. But the good news is God never calls us to something that he doesn't equip us for. So if God calls us to life in Christ, God will give us everything that we need to be who he's called us to be and do what he's called us to do. So we need to stop looking at God's commands. as, man, that's hard. That's too much. As as, as God has equipped us and, and empowered us to do this, and at some point in our Christian journey, his commands stop looking like demands and they start looking like delight to us. We we enjoy what God has called us to do because we know it's good for us. So, so stop seeing God's commands as impossible and start seeing them as possible. First Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13 says this now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all have knowledge, knowledge puffs up but love builds up if if anyone thinks he knows anything he does not yet know it as he ought to know it but if anyone loves God he is known by him it's beautiful verse 4 about eating food sacrificed to idols then We, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. However, not everybody has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat it, and we are not better if we do eat it. Verse 9 says this, but be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you the one who has knowledge, the, the mature believer of sorts, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience, the other Christian, won't, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died is actually ruined by your knowledge. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never eat meat again. So that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Let us pray. Uh, Father, I just thank you today for for your presence, God. I thank you for your people. I thank you, God, that we get to come into this uh, body of believers, God, and sharing your word together, that we get to worship together. Father, I pray that ultimately your son Jesus would be known today, that we would be drawn to him, God, and drawn to his love for us and his sacrifice that he's made for us. And so god i pray for the person who is in the room and has a hard heart that's indifferent that is neutral that doesn't care that feels detached that that wants nothing to do with god but but maybe 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 they're curious but but maybe pride stands in the way god i pray today that you will break down every wall god i pray you will break down every wall that stands between you and your people i pray god for those of us who are already walking in christ that we are edified today god i pray that we will grow in our faith today i pray that Sanctification would happen, that we are transformed, God, that our minds are renewed today. And I pray ultimately, God, that we will grow in our love for you. And so, Lord, we thank you today, God. We we give you glory, we give you honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. People of God said, Amen. You may be seated, in the Lord's presence. In the sermon series possible. My sermon title this morning is Freedom Comes with Responsibility. Freedom comes with responsibility. I, I want to kind of go left this morning, intentionally go left and propose this question that I don't think we we ask often enough as it relates to people who are new believers in the faith. What should a new Christian do to grow in Christ and supplement their faith? What what does it look like for somebody to get saved, be in a relationship with Jesus, brand new, what, what does it look like? What, is, what, what are they su- supposed to do? I know if I were to take a poll and a survey and ask people in this room, some would say, well, they need to start reading the Bible immediately. They need to read the Bible, and that would be true. Some would say they, they need to start praying. They would need to pray Immediately. Then, then some of you like your pastor that apologetic for the local church would say they need to join a church immediately. They need to join a church because you can't have life in Christ outside of a local body. And that's true, too. Some would say if they, they just got saved. They need to immediately. They, they need to get they need to get baptized. And then some of you who need help in the church who've, who've been serving and you're, you're tired of serving by yourself and seeing the same faces every Sunday because you see other Christians that are believers and they don't serve, they, you would say they, they need to they need to start serving. We need to incorporate them in their body and, and get them to start serving and plowing as soon as possible. And and everybody who says these things would be accurate. But but, but what is it actually look What what those are just things to do? But but what does it look like for a person to actually be a Christian, and not to sound too corporate, I don't want to sound too corporate, although I have a corporate background, I don't want to sound too corporate, but what does it? What does an onboarding process to faith look like? What does what what, what, what an onboarding process look like for someone that just got saved? You, you know, if you've had a job before, some jobs, you get there for the first day, they'll just leave you hanging and tell you to figure it out on your, on your own. They'll, they'll, just, they'll just give you a phone and, and you don't know anybody. They'll give you a phone and a script, especially if you, you started a new job and you just started working and you are in college or you, you just got out of high school or you're in college or just got out of college. And you got to take just a job to make ends meet and you end up working in a call center. That's all good. and That's all good in the hood. Nothing wrong with that. But, but what, what happens if you get there and they just say, here's his phone. Here's the script figured out on your own and, and you just sit there and you don't know anybody and they hand you this script and they hand you this phone and you just get to dial Or maybe it's not that scenario. Maybe you sit there for a while and you just smile until you observe what everybody else is doing at the job. And then you try to get in where you fit in or, or you ask the person, hopefully if they're nice, the person near you, uh, what's the lay of the land around this place? You know, you got to ask some important questions when you first get to a job. What time do we go to lunch? What, what, t- what time is lunch? How, how long is my lunch break? Is it 30 minutes? Because if it's 30 minutes, you already plotting on how you're going to get out of this, this job and get to your next job. Is, is lunch 45 minutes? Th- then you, you still are asking the question, am I really going to be able to, to stay here? And, and how about this? Where, where is the bathroom? Where, where's the bathroom? That's important. And, and, and what time do people tend to leave? Does everybody stay to 5 or do they leave to 5.30 or do we leave a little early at 4.30? You're hoping that they'll tell you they're really lenient around here. They don't really care what, what time you leave. And so, so some of us have that experience, right? But, but then we, we ask these questions because we don't want to assume the way we did things at our old job is acceptable at our new job. And so we need somebody to tell us what to do. If not, we will just do what we were already accustomed to doing at the place that we were before and then sometimes you get a good job a real good job and they have a new employee orientation they lay it all out for you the expectations and the benefits oh this is good because now you know how much paid time off you get Do you start off with two weeks or three weeks if you're real lucky, you might get four weeks, four weeks of off time just to start your job. And then you get health insurance. And sometimes the job is real good, it'll have, uh, it'll have a vision and dental to go along with it if you got United Healthcare to do that. You got some of these other things I don't really know. And then you got the 401k plan or the 403B. If you work for the government, a 401k plan and you know what the company matches, and they match all the way up to this or that. And and by the way, side note, I just need to I just feel this in my spirit. I need it to you better be contributing to your 401k. I just felt I just need, need to say that. I know that's unspiritual for some of you, but you need to contribute to your 401k, and you need to know the difference between a Roth and an IRA. But that's besides the point. So you got the pay time off, you got the health insurance, you got the 401k and the company match, and then you're talking about compensation and, and, and the bonus structure, and then you got the tuition reimbursement, and, and then here's what they hit you with. All of these things are yours w- once you pass the 90-day probation period. I hate that 90-day probation period, but I, I even think we start, should probably start doing a, a Christianity 90-day probation period, because some of us, once we find out that this ain't what we want, we want to leave the faith But one of the greatest benefits you can get at a new job is that they give you another employee for you to shadow. That's a blessing. They assign you a person. While you get your feet wet, they assign somebody to you and this this person is is in a more personal and a personal and more candid manner, gives you the rundown on the job. This tends to be a person that they believe is a, a good representative, a representation of the culture of the actual company. That there'll be a good influence on you, someone like you who's a new employee. And that person that is assigned to you is the company's way of saying to you that we care enough about you that we're willing to bear some responsibility while you are a part of our corporation. They're willing to bear some of the responsibility to a person who comes in because they also want. That person to thrive, and we believe that once you have spent time with this person that has been here longer than you, you will have an example to follow about what you are free and not free to do while you are here. And I got to thinking: I think we should need something like that for Christians. That there should be somebody that we shout at when we first get saved. Somebody that shows us the ropes, because when a person gets saved, the question that they typically ask is, now what? Now, now what? And, and I want to ask you today, what is, your qu- what is your answer to that question? I don't know. I've been saved 20 years. And I'm just trying, to, just trying to figure it out myself. I don't know what to do. And we do not just look out for ourselves as Christians, but we bear responsibility to each other. And, and, and we do not know the depth or duration in which the people that we are engaging with the new believer. We don't know the depth and the duration that they've been in some stuff. We don't know what God saved them from, but we do bear responsibility to ensure that we help them to live in the direction that God has called them to. That's called discipleship. That this is what we've been called to do. We bear some responsibility, but we got to get to know a person because we don't know what people have been through. We don't know how deep the stronghold was. We don't know what somebody was addicted to. We don't know what somebody was going through. We don't know what what God saved somebody out of, but we do know that we have a responsibility as believers to help them walk from that and walk towards God and trust in him more and more as they become a believer. We, we bear that responsibility that, that we, we must do our best in a godly, loving, and redemptive manner to get to know that person and make sure that we don't unintentionally reinforce things that they got saved from but they still struggle with because it's possible to get saved from something and still struggle with it at the same time. In the context here, the issue is idolatry. More specifically, although it may not be common to you, the issue at hand is food that is offered to idols. It was a pressing issue for new converts in Corinth. People in this particular time and particular culture, they worship actual idols, idols made of images that, that, that people would then sacrifice to these idols. Oftentimes, the sacrifices were celebrated with a follow-up meal, it was expected that if you had some sort of food, meat meat in particular, it was sacrificed or dedicated to some sort of idol at some point. You never had meat in antiquity or in these days that wasn't at some point sacrificed to some sort of idol. It was very normal and very common for a meal to be shared at the home of a friend, a family member, and part of the food, particularly the meat, had been sacrificed to an idol at some point. So before I go deep into that, let me pan back just a minute... And give us a 30,000 foot view of what's happening in the text. He's dealing with idolatry. And here's a working definition of idolatry. Idolatry is this. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, our significance, and our security. Let me say that again. Here's what idolatry is, a working definition. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our happiness and hope hope, significance, and security. And here's what the late, great Charles Spurgeon had to say. He said this, if you love anything better than God, you are idolaters. If there's anything you would not give up for God, it is your idol. If there's anything that you seek with greater fervor than you seek the glory of God, that is your idol. And conversion means turning from every idol. And so turning from idols is central to Christian conversion. When we get saved, it is assumed that we've turned from our idols and turned towards God and trusted in him instead of, entrusting, instead of trusting in idols. And everywhere Paul went, when Paul entered into a city, Paul addressed the idolatry in the city. He always addressed idolatry. He went straight to where the people worship idols, and Paul would address the idolatry in the city. And so uh, if we know anything about Romans 1.23, Romans 1.23 talks about idolaters and how they are people who refuse to acknowledge God as God as he has already been revealed in creation. If we know Romans 1.23, it tells us that the people they worship idols made to look like people, birds, animals, and reptiles. And so uh, idols in those days may look like a person. An idol could be an animal, but whatever the case, people worship these animals. And here's what Paul is saying to them, that idols are actually nothing. That they Lifeless, they're dumb, they're just a figment of your imagination. Idols are simply images of a deity that does not exist except in the imagination of the worshiper. Let me say that again idols are simply images of a deity that does not exist except in the imagination of the worshiper. And so, these people did not just worship one idol, people tended to worship several idols. They had an idol for every need and every occasion, they were polytheistic. They worship many idols and many different gods. But idolatry was a way of life. And I'll venture to say idolatry is still a way of life. Why is this important for Christians to understand? If we go back just two chapters. We studied 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6 9 says this idolaters, it lists off a whole list of non superlatives. And it says, even idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are an idol worshiper, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And th- there, there are not any other, I want to just tell you today, there's, there's no other gods. So, some, some of us believe that, yeah, there's Jesus and then there's Buddha and then there's Allah and then there's whoever else we worship. But I want to tell you something. That the Bible actually suggests that there is only One God. We we as followers of Jesus have knowledge of the reality that there is only one God, and that is fundamental to who we are as Christians. So I want to say this today, and I don't want to assume that everybody knows this or that everybody believes this, but we as Christians believe that there is one God, not multiple gods, not several gods, not Jesus and some other God, but we believe that there is one God. Are we clear on this? We as believers believe that there is only one God. You know, we call this, and please don't let this scare you. I just want to use a term. Please don't walk out of the church because I use a theological term. Please don't let this scare you. This is called monotheism. Monotheism, it is the belief that only one God exists. From the beginning to the end, the Bible testifies that there is only one God who exists. Monotheism. Mono meaning one, theism meaning God. Mono, one, theism, God. We believe that there is one God. So if you are a Christian, you're monotheistic. Y'all with me? Some of y'all like, ooh. (laughs) I didn't know that. I was just talking to this lady the other day. She told me about Buddha, and I was like, yeah, I believe that too. It is so important that when we go back to the Old Testament, we go back to the Torah, we look at Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, there's something called the Shema. You don't need to know that, but I just want to give you this. It's called the Shema. Jews will recite this three times a day, morning, evening, and night. It's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. It says this, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here's what it says in verse 5: Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The important part I want you to see is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, why would they say this three times a day? Because it was it was necessary for them to say this and know and repeat and have it in their hearts that there is only one God in amidst the world of idolatry. What is the first? Here's how important this is. What is the first commandment? If we look at the first commandment, Exodus 22 through 3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. Do not have other gods before me. That is the first commandment. What is the second commandment? This is how serious this is. Do not make an idol for yourself. Whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters underneath, do not bow and worship to them. Do not serve them. The first two commandments deal with idolatry. God is serious about us worshiping nothing but him. If we go to Isaiah 43 10, when God speaks to the prophet Isaiah, here's what he says. But you are my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord. You are my servant. You have chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been and there never will be. This is what it says in your Bible. It leaves no room for polytheism. It only leaves room for us to worship one God. And this is what makes us distinct from everybody else. We believe that only, there's only one God. There's not several gods and several lords. And this is the knowledge that we have. God has opened our eyes and allows us to see these idols for what they really are. Nothing. They are incapable of giving us what we desperately tried to get out of them. Anything that you worship other than God is going to leave you wanting. If you worship something else, what you're really trying to do is impose a godness on them that they don't have. Only God can be God. Only God can satisfy and supply all of your needs. You think you desire this thing so much? No, really, that's just an indication that you desire God. You feel like you got a hole in your heart and there's a void in your life and something's off and something's missing? No, you don't need to feel that with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. No, you need to feel that with God. He is the only one that can satisfy and supply that need need to get this down in your system. And this is the knowledge that God has given us. All Christians possess this in some measure. God through the Holy Spirit has illuminated our minds to understand this. This knowledge that we have that there's only one God and we've been called to serve him is a gift from God. It is not an arrogant knowledge that we walk around with our chest puffed up. Yeah, I know it's only one God. Yeah, you don't even know that. I know it's only one God. They're so stupid. Those atheists are so stupid. Those polytheistic people are so stupid. Those Buddhists are so stupid we know that there's one God no the only reason that you know it's one God is because God woke you up and told you that it was one God this is not something that you got on your own we don't discover the knowledge of God on our own God illuminates our mind he makes us alive and so this is not just some arrogant knowledge this is a humble knowledge this is a humble knowledge this this is the this is before the final exam and you haven't studied all semester and you're sure that you're about to fail the class, and you walk in depressed, but the teacher says, I know y'all. I know you're not prepared or equipped. You don't know any of the answers, but I feel merciful today. This is an open book test, and all the answers have been highlighted for you. You Oh God, thank you, Jesus. Oh God, thank you, Jesus. You would be a fool to then puff up your chest and act like you know something that you just didn't know five seconds ago. What you do know is only a partial information that was given to you by the mercy and the grace of somebody else. And this is the type of knowledge we have of God. It is not something we got on our own. It is something that God gave us. This is not the I got all the answers right type of knowledge. This is the knowledge was given to me type of knowledge. It is a humble knowledge. That's why he says in verse 2, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to be. If you are an arrogant Christian and you think you know everything, that means you know nothing at all. Because if you had to take the exam again, you might get a couple of them right. But it's not because you completely grasped the information. It's because you remember what somebody gave you. And the knowledge that you received in the illustration that I made was not based on a knowledge that you earned or worked hard for to study and learn. It was a knowledge that was given to you based on somebody else's initiation and relationship with you. And here's what verse 3 says, but if anyone loves God, He is known by him. Knowledge, known, knowledge, known. Anybody loves God, he is known by him. This is what Paul means. Knowledge is based on God's own loving knowledge towards us. Our love for God is based in God's own initiative towards us. 1 John 4, 19, never forget this scripture. We love because he first loved us. The only reason you can say that you love God is because God beat you to the punch. God loved you before you knew how to love anything. God loved you when you didn't know what love was. It was God who delivered us and rescued us from the power of sin and death. So what's really important is not so much our knowledge of God, but God's knowledge of us. That's what's really important. If we look at Galatians 4, 8 through 9, it says this, but in the past, Since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved all over again? If you know God and God knows you, why would you go back to what he brought you out of? Everything that you need is in Him. There is no need to worship anything else. You got the true and living. You got the you got the genuine article. You got the real thing. You got the creme de la creme. You got what you you got everything you need in God. And then he breaks back, makes the point, verses four through six. Would you look at that with me? Four through six says this about eating food sacrificed to idols. Then. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth or as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him. That should sound familiar to you if you were here for praise and worship or whatever. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist for him. Through him. Here's what he's saying. No idol actually exists. It's a house of cards. It's nothing there. That that food that may look like a burger is really an impossible burger. <laughs> it's an impossible burger from Burger King. No matter how much they try to convince you that it tastes like a burger, it tastes like the real thing, it's not the real thing. And this is what he's saying idols are. They may look like God. They may try to act like God. They may make you think they're God, but they are not the real thing. It's a nothing burger. It's an impossible burger. This is what idols are. There is only one God, the Father, and He is the creator, and He is the origin of all things, and the ultimate goal of all the creation is His glory, and God shares that identity with His Son. And so when we read verse 6, and we see that all things are from Him, and we exist for Him, that should sound familiar to us, because the same thing is said in Romans 11, and the same thing thing is said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, and here's what He's trying to say about God the Father, being the creator, and the origin of all things, and Jesus being this mediator that we exist through him and for him. Here's what he's saying. That my son Jesus is the point of reference for everything. That everything finds its origins, its purposes, and will find its end in my son. That that includes us. We were made for him. We were made to love him. We were made to serve him. We were made to worship him. We were made to obey him. We have been created by Christ and we exist for Christ. You know this. What does that mean? Sounds like a bunch of spiritual jargon to me. What does it mean that we've been created for God been created by God for God? What does it mean we exist through Christ and we exist for Christ? What does that mean? It means that Jesus has a claim on your life if you are a believer, that your life is not your own, that you've been bought at a price, the precious blood of Jesus, that you do not belong to yourself this is a beautiful spirituality that God has staked his claim on you, that you actually belong to God. I don't think we get this because we desire to belong to other people so much. But we act like God is substandard. It's like, yeah, hey, God, that's cool. I, I get it. I have a relationship. with That's cool, but I want him. Or I want her. Or I want that thing. I want that job. I want that money. God is cool, but... No, we should say, no, you cool, but I got him. We got to reverse the order. But if God has a claim on our lives and we belong to him, you know what that means? That we cannot participate in idolatry under any circumstance. God has staked his claim on our lives. We know him. He knows us. We can't serve any other God. And because we've been called to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, all our strength, all our might, God has freed us to love him and serve him, but that's not it. He's also called us to love and serve our neighbors. Our knowledge of God is not inseparable from sacrificial love. It's been said about Christian community, it's been said this, that love is the mortar between the bricks of Christian community. Love is the mortar between the bricks of Christian community. Love is what keeps the church together. Love is what keeps Christians together. It's not our knowledge. It's our love, because if our love doesn't have knowledge, then our love can be dangerous and destructive. Knowledge and love, knowledge and love, it is the love that is the mortar between the bricks of Christian community. And so the second part of this text is going to be just an example of that love, where out of love, we who have freedom in Christ and have been given rights as believers. We use our rights to build up other people. How we utilize the knowledge of God that we have is important because knowledge absent of love can rupture and destroy a community. And here's why. Let's look at the last portion of this section of text. uh, Verses 7 through 12 says this. However, not everyone has this knowledge. And when it says not everyone has this knowledge, it's not even talking about unbelievers. It's also talking about other Christians. Not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now, that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. They've been so, they have su- they're such a stronghold that although they've been saved and set free, it's hard for them to live in that reality. Food will not bring us close to God. We're not worse off if we don't eat. We're not better off if we do eat. But here's what he says to the stronger Christian or, or the Christian whose conscience is not weak. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak if someone sees you, the one who has the knowledge, the one who knows that there is only one God, that does not struggle in that area, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for who Christ died, is actually ruined by your knowledge. This is where knowledge can go wrong. This is why arrogant knowledge is destructive. It has to be compared. It has to be uh, uh, coincided with, with love. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, You're not just wanting them, you're also sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, Paul says, he spikes the football of love. I'll never again eat meat. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? He says, I won't eat it so that I don't cause my brother or my sister to fall. They have a weak conscience they, 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 they they're the thing that guides their beliefs, that guides their principles that helps them to make judgments about what is right and wrong is weak. In the wrong setting, they can make wrong decisions. Some people can't handle every scenario or situation that you put them in. You can't handle it if I put you in a certain situation. We have to be real about ourselves. Not not all of us can walk into a right uh, some sort of place. I, I, back in the back in the days, there used to be this guy on, TV, on a, a minister on TV locally here in Orlando, and they used to go evangelize in the parking lot of the strip club. I said, oh, <laughs> them boy's brave out there, man. But they went out there, but you have to know what you're strong enough for and what you're not. They have the same knowledge that you do, but they may still struggle. And in this scenario, they were struggling with food that was offered to idols. Here's what I want to say to you just because you've been saved and set free and filled with the Holy Ghost and you don't have a struggle in a particular area of your life, does not mean that's the same story for your brother or sister in the Lord. You may have no you may be able to drink like a fish, not get drunk, and not be tempted to get drunk. I wouldn't recommend trying it, but you might have a gift. But for another believer, drinking may be their greatest struggle. Don't assume what's safe for you is safe for another Christian. Don't just make that assumption. You, you may think it's, it's not a big deal. It's, it's just a little, little drinky drink. And then you use your favorite verse, Jesus turned water to wine. It's your favorite verse to justify your, your alcoholic nonsense. And Paul is like, yes, food, nothing, you're right, Nothing. food is neutral. It, nothing, it means absolutely nothing. You're not closer to God if you, drink, if, if you eat all the food. You're not further away from God if you don't eat any food. It, it doesn't do anything. It, it, it's, it's neutral. But if you do put food in the context of idolatry, then it becomes something different. And the problem for them is it's not that they, they had the knowledge that food is nothing. It there's no idol, so it doesn't matter how you eat it. But they were used to eating food that was sacrificed to idols so they couldn't separate their newfound faith and what they used to live out. It was too close for comfort. They had just been brought out of it. So now for them to put themselves in that environment was was naive and nonsense. And so you got another Christian in the same context with you and that weaker Christian is looking to the Christian who has the knowledge and looking for you for validation on whether they should do it or not. Look, music is good and music is a gift from God, but we all know music can be misused. It's an instrument of wickedness. I got an example for you. I was, had a couple guys in the church in the car with me one night. I just was just going to hang out with them. We went bowling. Um, I, won't, I won't name them. <laughs> Chris Paul and Tyreek. <laughs> and I was riding, so don't judge me. I was listening to some old school, but I'm talking about real old school. Y'all know I'm a hip-hop head. I'm sorry. Don't ju- judge, judge somebody else. Don't judge me. I grew up, grew up in the early 80s. My brother's 10 years older. I just grew up on hip hop. That's what it is. But I like to listen to old school. I'm talking about old, old school. See, some of, y'all old, some, of y'all, some of y'all old school is some of this new stuff. It's nonsense. I'm talking about old, old school. I was listening to some Aretha Franklin. Do you come back to me, that's what I'm going to do. I had a little Dion Ward playing. You're going to want me back. You're going to need me one day. Like that. That's good. Cool. That's good. Had the greatest R&B singer of all time, greatest soul singer of all time. Had a little Donnie Hathaway jamming. Y'all don't know nothing about that. I don't know about Donny. little David Ruffin was going on. David Ruffin's David Ruffin, apart from The Temptations. I'm like David Ruffin? Who's David Ruffin? And, and I was just riding, and I got scared because one of the guys started reminiscing. He was like, ooh. I said, like, oh, God, what's happening? I said, like, why are you acting like that? I got a little scared. I was like, oh, my Lord, I'm, I, done, I done got his mind off on the wrong thing. I done, done tucked his mind somewhere. And then, then he said something. He was like, oh, this reminds me of my grandmother. I was like, your grandmama? Kind of weird. What kind of, what, is, what are you talking about? What weird? Tyreek, I mean, I'm sorry. He was like, What is happening? What is happening? But he was just saying his grandmother used to, used to play the Reef the Franklin song. So, so it, he was just reminiscing. But, but some of you, maybe for you, it ain't the old school. Maybe you hear Woman's Work by, by Maxwell and you hear them high notes. And you're like, oh, Jesus. You start remembering Robert or somebody. This <laughs> Woman's Work. And you're like, oh, Jesus. And it sends you somewhere. Because although nothing is wrong with the song in it itself, It could influence you to do something else. So I apologize, Chris, that I didn't ask you (laughs) if music did anything to you. Because sometimes you need to ask before you proceed. Because with rights comes responsibilities. So here's what he says Be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For a believer, personal freedom is never really just personal. Rights are never exercised in isolation. They always have a bearing on those around us. And this screams out to us that our decisions are not inconsequential in the life of others. And we have to sometimes examine our actions and our freedoms from a different angle and see what implications they may have on somebody else that is not as strong as we are. And this is the context. They're they're at a a gathering of some sort and food has been offered up to idols. And if they participated in it, somehow it would have messed with their conscience. And there is a stronger or a more mature believer there and they're in this setting. And let's just imagine if the setting is you. And there's food, and you're with your family or you're with your close friends or, or whatever the case. I know my church. Can you imagine if you're at brunch? And you were a mature believer, and it's right after church because Pastor John got you out before noon. And you, 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 the waiter comes out and y'all sitting around the table, how y'all do at brunch, and you order, you like get your little order, and you're like, yeah, let me get the strawberry lemon waffles. And let me get a steak and eggs, and I want my eggs over easy. And then some of you sophisticated Christians are like, yeah, I take, I'll have the crab cakes. And then somebody speaks out and says, oh, oh yeah, and, and let's do the bottom, bottomless endless mimosas for the table. <laughs> and this is where it goes left. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, let me get, let me get the strawberry lemonade mimosa for me to go with my strawberry lemon waffles. And somebody says, no, let me get a white sangria for me. It's a sangria for me. I feel it. I feel it in the spirit in here. And some of you would be in a tough situation. And can you imagine once the food comes back and someone gets up to say grace, but instead of saying grace, they say grace to the ancestors? We just want to offer up these mimosas to the ancestors. Or they offered up to Allah. Or your new personal favorite, they offered up to the universe because you know the universe is running things, so I heard out here these days. And you as a Christian got to make a decision. Are you going to participate? Are you going to make a decision to ride with Jesus? And don't forget there's another Christian at the table. What you going to do? And for some of you, because you suffer with FOMO so bad, you're going to look at what everybody else is doing before you make a decision. What happened to the Christians that when they first got saved, they said, I don't want nothing to do with nothing. I just want Jesus. Me and my wife were talking last night. When we first got saved, we got rid of all our secular music. She took it further than I did. I don't know what's wrong with her. <laughs> she burned up all her secular CDs, burned them up. CDs, that was a thing that we used to, Never mind. whatever. She burned up all her secular CDs. I didn't burn up my Jay-Z CDs, I'm sorry. <laughs> I hid them from myself somewhere. I'm just being honest with you. But I didn't want that. I didn't want that contaminating who God was calling me to be. And I wasn't strong enough to listen to that and feel like I wanted to go out and be who he was saying that I could be on the record. But here's the thing. Some of you are falling victim to the thing that Paul didn't want them to fall victim to. Some of you, maybe not polytheistic, but you do believe in syncretism. You want Jesus And something else. Jesus alone is not enough for you. So you want Jesus plus something. What Jesus says, if you want me plus something, I'll buy out gracefully. Because it's either all or nothing for me. Either I'm enough or I'm nothing. And so this is a situation where we have to love people enough to not use the freedom that we have. Instead of using the freedom for our own benefit. We use it to serve somebody else. This is all that Paul is getting, getting at. Because when you don't. If there's another immature believer there. somebody was not as strong. You could possibly ruin their faith. Do damage to their faith. Because if you do whatever the thing is. And they see you doing it. They're going to take their, get their approval from you. And you give validation for whatever they're struggling with. And it opens up Pandora's box to so much other stuff that they were trying to be free from. And if you just look at your rights from crisis, these are my rights. Nobody tell me what to do. If I want to have a drink, I'm just going to just have a drink. I don't care who's in my presence. That's their business. If they're not strong enough, they need to get strong enough. If that's your perspective, then you ain't really free. You know how you know when you're free? When you can use your freedom not to do what your flesh is calling you to do, even if it's not sin. Freedom is freedom enough to walk away. Remember, this is not freedom just to restrict. This is freedom to actually love someone. Because he says early on in the text that love builds up. And our job is to build each other up. This is what Dr. Eugene Peterson says, and I'm almost done. This is what he says about 1 Corinthians 9, 12 to 13. He says Christ gave his life for that person. Wouldn't you at least be willing to give up going to dinner for him? Because as you say, it doesn't really make a difference anyway, but it does make a difference if you hurt your friend terribly, risking his eternal ruin. When you hurt your friend, you hurt Christ. We have to consider Romans fourteen fifteen says this for if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. And this is a call, us, call for us to put someone else's entrance before our own. Here's what I want you to know. that He's not just calling us to do something that we don't have a modern example that someone's done before. Jesus did the same thing. You have rights. As a Christian, you are entitled to be free. But the most entitled person that ever lived gave up his rights for you and I. He gave up his rights for the weaker brother or sister, which was you and I. And we follow the motto of this. Jesus, voluntarily on the cross, gave up his life, shed his blood for your sins. He died on this cross. God raised him from the grave, accomplishing your forgiveness and your right to eternal life with God on the cross. All because of a voluntary, sacrificial display of love that Christ did for the undeserving, which was you. I can't help but to think about Philippians chapter 2. And I'll read this to you. I think we read it almost every week. It says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did that for you and I so that we can have the freedoms that we have. But he didn't do it for us to use and abuse those freedoms. He gave us those freedoms so that we would be free to love him and love our neighbor. Because with freedom in Christ, it comes with great responsibility. So this is a call for us to consider other people's interests more important than our own. This is a call for us to follow the example in the model of Jesus. Of a life of self-giving sacrifice on behalf of someone else. Don't say that you love God and then hate your brother or sister. First John tells us that if you say you love God, but you hate the person that you do see that you are a liar. So Christ has freed us to serve somebody. Christ has called us to, to use the knowledge to build up. To build up someone else. To consider someone else. Hey, is it okay if I play this music in your presence? See, some of that hits you wrong because you feel like it's my music, it's my car, I play what I want. You haven't grasped it yet. Hey, am I yup, you you mind if I you mind if I drink? You, you okay with I, if I order if I order a drink, is that going that gonna bother you? If you if you feel like, man, that's psh, I want to drink on a drink. I had a long week. It's my weekend. Get it how I live? If that's your posture, you don't get it yet. You don't get it yet. Still don't get it because God didn't have to do what he did for you. He didn't have to. He had a prerogative to leave you in your sins. It was his divine prerogative not to save you, not to love you, to leave you dead in your trespasses. It was his divine prerogative to leave you right where he right where you were. But he relinquished his rights. Died on the cross voluntarily for your sins. You can give up your rights to serve somebody else. Let us pray. hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.